All right, we're going to have a little fun uh, at the beginning of this morning's message, okay? What we're going to do is I'm going to give you famous statements in history, and I want you to tell me who said it. Some of you are thinking, well, that's not fun. You got my hopes up. What do you? Others are thinking I didn't drink anywhere near enough coffee this morning for this. But this is what we'll do. We'll, okay. we'll start off with an easy one. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Who said it? Franklin D. Roosevelt. Very good. Here he is. I came, I saw, I conquered. Or Vinnie V. Okay. Somebody, somebody's paying attention in class. Okay. Julius Caesar. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Not Jesus. The... Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Astronaut Neil Armstrong. And lastly, just keep swimming. Okay, all right. I tried throwing you a curveball there. Yes, Dory from Finding Nemo. I, <laughs> some of you caught on there. Okay. While there are a lot of powerful statements made throughout recorded history, there are some even more powerful statements we find in today's passage, whether they're spoken or, as we'll see today, even unspoken. We've been discussing rising tensions while Jesus had been teaching in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, with that current tension ending with the temple guards who had been sent to arrest Jesus, simply leaving without doing anything about it. We find out that they're, that they're astonished at what they heard from Jesus, so much so that they even wondered out loud if he was even a mere man. That's saying a lot, especially coming from guys who had seen all sorts of crazy stuff done by people trying to disrupt others' worship. That's where we ended chapter 7 last week. Now, we move in to John chapter 8. And I'm going to be straight up front with you on this passage this morning. This morning's passage is going to be treated differently from any other passage in all of Scripture, and I'm going to explain why. Before we read anything at the beginning of chapter 8, I want everyone to take a look at verse 53 in chapter 7, so the very last verse in chapter 7, and then skip ahead to the end of verse 11 in chapter 8. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, starting technically with uh, verse 53 of chapter 7. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But what do you see there? What do you see in your Bibles? Between John chapter 7, 53, and John chapter 8, verse 11, at the very end of that verse, what do you see there? Okay, so you... <laughs> 
You gave me the long answer, Dana. What I, <laughs> what I was looking for were brackets, right? Does everybody see you have brackets there around the beginning of chapter 7, verse 53, and the end of chapter 8, verse 11? Okay, Dana already jumped ahead for us, but I'm <laughs> why are those there and what does that mean for us? Before we get into that, I'm going to give you a nerd warning and give you a very brief explanation of why we can trust that what we have in non-brackets anyway in our Bibles is the true word of God. This has been the center of rigorous academic and scholarly study called textual criticism. You might have heard that term before. Don't fall asleep on me yet. In everyday understanding, biblical scholars do the heavy lifting of reading all the manuscripts we have in existence in their original languages and compare them so we have the clearest understanding of the Holy Scriptures. We don't have any of the original writings, most likely because God didn't want them to become relics that would be worshipped as other items still end up being worshipped today. But what we do have is thousands, thousands of manuscripts. In short, the more manuscripts we possess and study, the greatest accuracy we have in having the true scripture. Now, why is that? Because you can compare every single manuscript and determine which are the most accurate and correct readings between all of them. To put it in perspective, here are other written records from history that we have. We just talked about this guy a minute ago, but Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars only has 10 manuscripts. Livy's Roman history only has 20 manuscripts. And there are only eight manuscripts in existence of Thucydides' history. But historians take all of these as accurate historical record. Now, comparing the number of those manuscripts in existence with manuscripts of the books of the Bible that are in existence, we have over 5,000 800 portions and versions of manuscripts of the Bible. All electronically preserved at this point and all readily available for study. In other words, the Bibles we have today, especially through the modern study of textual criticism, can be trusted for authenticity in doctrine and historical fact. Now, we come to our passage this morning. Most biblical scholars and even most conservative Protestant and evangelical scholars do not believe that John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 11 was written by the Apostle John nor another apostolic source nor original to this gospel. I know this is going to sound shocking, but since my calling as a pastor, as Paul commanded Pastor Timothy, is to be as accurate as possible with the Word of God. This is what must be given in connection with this specific passage. There is overwhelming evidence for this view, not all of which I'll get into right now. Just a few pieces of this are this. This story is missing from all of the manuscripts we have of John until the 5th century. It's only after that point it starts showing up. None of the early church fathers reference this story and read John as going from 752 straight to 812. 
As we'll see, the text flows best when read from 752 straight to 812. The way it's written is wildly different from the rest of the way the, the, uh, John writes the rest of this gospel. All of this points to a good possibility that this was added later by a scribe who thought it would fit well in between 752 and 812. Now, did this event actually happen? That's a whole other conversation. Most likely, this event actually happened. D.A. Carson, who holds a PhD from Cambridge University and is currently a professor emeritus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Bruce Metzger, a leading expert on the text of the New Testament until his death in 2002, both think this story probably happened in some form. Both scholars believe that this story was something that happened during Jesus' ministry and circulated as oral tradition for hundreds of years until it was finally written down. But here's the issue. Even if this story actually happened, which is likely, and it sounds like something Jesus would have done, it wasn't written by John nor another apostolic source. It's not originally part of John's gospel, and therefore, it's not God-breathed, not authoritative, and should not be considered canonical scripture. Again, I know that may be shocking, but I want to be as accurate as I can with this. The overwhelming evidence against its inclusion in our Bibles has many scholars telling Bible publishers to remove it and relegate the entire passage to a footnote at the end of the gospel. So the biggest question for us is, as we're reading our Bibles, is what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with these verses? It's a story loved by millions of Christians for 1,500 years and for good reason. I think Dr. John Piper, pastor and founder of Desiring God Ministries, from which along with other scholarly, scholarly sources, I got the specific information I just referenced, has the most reasonable and logical approach to how to handle this passage, so I'm going to follow in Dr. Piper's footsteps here. Dr. Piper teaches that we shouldn't take the passage itself as God-breathed and authoritative and canonical scripture, but to take it as an echo, whose main point simply is just another support and another illustration of what the rest of God-breathed and authoritative scripture says. So what I'll do is touch on the main points of this story and connect it to what is canonized, what is authoritative, what is God-breathed scripture, and that way we'll still benefit from the main message of this. I told you this is going to be different from any other passage uh, that we went through. Firstly, let's read what's in these verses. Since this shouldn't be treated as Scripture itself, and we'll be using it to point to other portions of Scripture, let's read the entire passage at once. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So verse 53, the verse right before that, everybody went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? 
They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. The author of this purports that after the events of chapter 7, everyone went home, but Jesus spent the night on the Mount of Olives. Now, linguistically, this doesn't logically line up with the rest of chapter 8, because what Jesus says in verse 12, following this morning's passage, lines up better if he said it on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we, were, which we left him at last week, continuing with what ended chapter 7. That's just one more problem with this passage. But for the sake of what's included here, the author writes that everyone went home as if the Feast of Tabernacles was now already over and everyone else went back to their original homes in chapter 7, verse 53, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and then returned back to the temple the next day, or as the author says, the day following the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. When Jesus gets there, he starts teaching the people in the temple again. While he's there, some from the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who they say uh, has been caught in adultery. As one biblical scholar notes, this woman was probably not caught by chance in the actual act of adultery, but by pure chance. What probably happened in the historical event was that the Pharisees had caught wind of a rumor that a certain woman who may have been married was having an affair with a guy. So a few of the Pharisees and scribes got together, since the Mosaic law required two witnesses to a crime, and planned on spying on her and catching her in the act which I don't know is pretty weird to me, but I guess these guys were desperate enough to use something to try to trip Jesus up. Their plan worked, and these scribes and Pharisees dragged this woman, since it was very early in the morning, according to this account, into what's called the court of the temple. The man in this affair should have also been brought in before Jesus, but perhaps he escaped, or the Pharisees just, just weren't interested in him. After all, if they were trying to trip Jesus up, he might be more lenient towards a woman based on what the crowds might think, and that's exactly where they wanted him. That's exactly what they wanted to accuse him of. Since this was a mixed group, this was most likely the court of women in the temple, the next court inwards from the court of Gentiles. They drag this woman in and say, Teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. And then to leave no doubt whatsoever, they specifically say, in the very act. They then say, what should we do about it? Should we stone her to death? Which is what is very clear in the law. Again, in their minds, if Jesus did give his approval, he would risk the crowds thinking he was way too judgmental and leave him. And if he didn't condemn her, he would be clearly breaking the law. Now, even though John didn't write this, but it's most likely something that historically happened, 
Do you see how desperate the Pharisees are at this point? And how low they were willing to go to try to get Jesus to mess up? Think about it. Think about what they did. All to try to get Jesus to mess up. They, they had no other tricks up their sleeves. This was it to try to trip Jesus up. If this, life, if this woman's life wasn't on the line, it'd be a little amusing that they're this desperate. But the author then tells us that Jesus doesn't say a word. He makes a statement, but he doesn't say a word. He merely stoops down and begins writing something in the dirt. And we read that he ends up writing something in the dirt twice. We have no clue what Jesus wrote, and it would just be speculation at this point as to what he wrote. It most likely was connected to one of the laws, perhaps a reference to Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19, about not being a purposely malicious witness in a court of law to accuse someone. As noted by one biblical scholar, what is important to see, especially if Jesus did reference the law, is this. Jesus wrote with his finger twice on something connected to the earth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Perhaps that of God the Father writing the Ten Commandments with his finger twice on something connected to the earth, two stone tablets. In that case, in this account, Jesus was making a direct reference to himself, not only fulfilling the law, but fulfilling the role of giver of the law. And if that's the case, what Jesus is, is the statement that Jesus is making without uttering a word is that he knew the law better than anyone else since he, as part of the Trinity, originally gave the law and no mere man had the right to throw it in his face or worse, use it, manipulate it, abuse it, twist it to test him and try to trip him up to sin. Well, what I want to focus on with the main points of are the statements Jesus vocalizes in this account. The first statement Jesus makes is to the Pharisees. And he says, if there is any of you who has not sinned in your life, you can then throw the first stone at her with your conscience clear. As I mentioned, we should see this account as an example or an illustration or an echo of other God-breathed and authoritative scriptures. For this statement, we can go to the verse I've referenced a lot lately. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. This is a quote by Paul from Psalm 14. Now, Jesus is not, not supporting any justice for breaking God's standards. But rather, he's exposing the Pharisees' hypocrisy and their abuse, their manipulation of the law. Their motivation was clear. They weren't trying to uphold the sanctity of the Mosaic law. They were trying to trip Jesus up. So Jesus throws their condemnation back in their face. And God-breathed scripture reveals the exact same thing. There is not one righteous person.
person. That's something the Pharisees had to come to grips with as their whole belief system was based on self-righteous obedience to the law. But like I said, Jesus wasn't throwing the law out the window. He was using this event to teach the Pharisees, to teach the woman, and all the onlookers something about himself. He has already made the statement earlier in authoritative scripture, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has already crossed over from death to life. In our account this morning, it's just one more echo of what Jesus had already stated in Scripture. Jesus, as God and as given the authority as judge, is the only righteous one. And as he judges according to the Father's standards, his judgment is perfect. Unlike the twisted and hypocritical malicious judgment the Pharisees had brought before Jesus. Ultimately, one needed to be concerned about their own standing before Jesus and his righteousness as perfect judge. The Pharisees were hoping to judge Jesus, or at the very least, the woman. But Jesus had turned it around to them having to judge themselves and whether or not they believe in Jesus for their salvation. That's the exact same basis for any one of us. We still need to live our lives to please Jesus as king and therefore seek to live our lives based on God's standards in his word. But that's not what our souls will ultimately be judged on. Our souls will ultimately be judged on whether or not we repented of our sin. Whether or not we took Jesus as our savior from that sin and the king over the rest of our lives. At that point, we're seen as blameless before God. Paul writes elsewhere in authoritative scripture, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Pharisees were making the Mosaic law the end all of end all, but Jesus was reiterating that since he is the fulfillment of all of it, he's the end all of end all. Paul goes on to say in God breathes scripture because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. See, the Pharisees had twisted the whole Jewish faith into what it was never supposed to be. It was always supposed to be, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And from that love for God, obey his commandments. The point and foundation was to be love for God, not just to obey his commandments. Out of that love was to be mercy. 
Mercy did not change what God expected as his standards in his law, but mercy reflected that love for God that was supposed to be the foundation of all of it. The Pharisees had turned it into, if you break God's commands, you must be condemned. That's it. There was no mercy involved. Again, Jesus wasn't tossing the laws out, themselves out the window. But since love for God was supposed to be the foundation, there was also a place for mercy. That's why he said elsewhere to the Pharisees in, a, in authoritative scripture, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not blind obedience to the law. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. If Jesus had no mercy on anyone, that could not be his purpose. That could not be his mission. If Jesus had no mercy on anyone, none of us would have any hope. We're all sinners. Again, not one of us is righteous. God's whole plan of salvation is based on mercy and forgiveness. It's all based on us not being perfect and us not being righteous, but repenting of our sin and seeking to please him by living for him and according to his standards in his word. After Jesus' second time of writing in the dirt, all those who had dragged the woman into the temple that day began to leave, one by one. We read, starting with the older ones. If Jesus had written a reference to Deuteronomy 9, perhaps the older ones knew the rest of that law which said if anyone had become a witness with malicious intent, then they were the ones to be stoned. Not wanting anything to come back at them, they bounce. The younger ones see the older ones they look up to leave and decide it's not worth it for them either. The only ones left at this point are Jesus and the woman. The first powerful statement Jesus made was directed at the Pharisees. The, the second powerful statement Jesus made was then directed at the woman. He said, where are those making the accusation towards you? Is there no one left to condemn you? The ironic part of this whole account is that the, the Pharisees were abusing the law to, yes, accuse the woman, but more so to try to trip up Jesus. But that same law required two or more witnesses to condemn someone of a crime, especially one that would involve mob death by stoning at this point. Jesus is looking around him, and he says to the woman, where are those witnesses? There are two that are supposed to be required before you are condemned. I don't see anybody, do you? So now, according to that same law, there was no one left to be a witness, and therefore there could not be any judgment or condemnation. So as pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus could also release the woman without condemnation and still obey the law since there were no longer the required number of witnesses to the so-called crime. It's almost like Jesus knew what he was doing all this time, huh? 
you think, right? Lastly, Jesus gives the third and last powerful statement in this account. He says, as the ultimate judge of the soul, I don't condemn you either. Go and don't keep purposefully sinning anymore, especially in this area. You and I both know what you did. Go, don't do it anymore. It's as simple as that. There are two major points we see here in this statement that are echoes of what else we clearly and powerfully see in God-breathed Scripture. One, forgiveness. And two, ongoing repentant living. Forgiveness and ongoing repentant living. The sin was a sin. What the woman had done was a sin and should not be taken lightly or ignored or celebrated. But Jesus, as God and as the one having been given the authority by God the Father to judge souls, also has the authority to forgive sins. See, a lot of people love to use this account, especially verse 7. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone to say that there shouldn't be any kind of moral standard that we impose on anyone else or expect from anyone else or even talk about. And so all kinds of sin that are clearly still against God's moral standards in the New Testament, including every kind of sexual relationship outside of God's blueprint and standard of a sexual relationship only, be, uh, only occurring in a marriage relationship between one man and one woman, God's established roles in his creation of biological male and female and only biological male and female, indulging in porn, the, mor- the murder of of innocent children, the chasing after worldly and selfish living and desires, lying to get your way, being boastful and prideful, or just not caring about living for God on a daily basis is accepted as perfectly fine and celebrated. The world will go on the way the world has always gone. But when what is supposed to be Jesus' church starts copying and promoting the same lifestyles and manipulating the Bible to support it, that must be called out for what they're promoting. It's sin. It always will be sin, no matter what the surrounding culture of this world accepts. But thank God for forgiveness. Amen? Thank God for forgiveness. No matter what we do to break God's moral law, there can be forgiveness. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can recognize it for what it truly is, sin, and repent of it, asking God for forgiveness. In fact, the only basis for any of our entrance into heaven is Jesus's forgiveness, just like the forgiveness he gave to this woman. And this forgiveness is not like human forgiveness, where you just say, I forgive you, and and that's about it. It's just connected to what happened. This is a forgiveness that cleanses us from all sin. Like 1 John 1.9 tells us, it's the only forgiveness 
that grants us entrance into God's kingdom. This is eternal forgiveness, not only for our eternal destination, but eternal forgiveness in eternal redemption of every area of our lives. It's a forgiveness of redemptive power. Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Since Jesus' forgiveness of our sins based on his grace leading us to repentance is an, is an eternal forgiveness, it completely changes, it completely transforms our entire lives. Jesus' forgiveness at the point of our salvation and throughout the rest of our lives is the very beginning of our redemption and transformation. We're not the same people anymore. We're, not, we're new creations. We have new hope. We have new meaning as children of God. We have new life. That new life as a new person being transformed by the Holy Spirit means exactly what Jesus says to the woman at the end of his third powerful statement. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When we are given forgiveness by Jesus, we don't keep on living the same way and shamelessly living in the same sinful ways as we did before. Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's a very good question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Baptism is the public symbol of what we've already done in repentance, dying to sin and living in the new life Jesus' forgiveness gives to us. Our initial repentance by God's grace gives us Jesus' forgiveness for our sins. And then we seek to live a life pleasing to him as king out of love for all that he's given to us through that forgiveness. This is manifested in a life of ongoing repentance as we grow more and more in our faith and the Holy Spirit reveals and convicts us of sin we haven't yet repented of. We have this promise given to us in this life of ongoing repentance, as referenced before. If we confess our sins, this is a promise. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And not only that, there's that eternal forgiveness. Purify us from all unrighteousness. No matter what it is, we can always come to Jesus in repentance and he will always forgive us. He will always cleanse us from that sin and he will always continue to go right back 
to transforming us through the Holy Spirit. So as we've seen, while this passage is not God-breathed and therefore authoritative scripture, what it is, is it's a beautiful echo and illustration of all the truth that is established time and time again throughout the entirety of God-breathed scripture. In a way, it's a nutshell and illustration of every human being who has repented and received Jesus' forgiveness and taken his call to live a life pleasing to him now. Because guess what? We were all caught red-handed in our sinful states. Frankly, because God sees everything. And we can't slip anything past him. But in his grace, he leads us to repent of that sin and gives us his forgiveness through Jesus' death and resurrection, having already paid for our sin. That forgiveness then calls us and drives us and empowers us through the Holy Spirit to get rid of sin and live the new life Jesus has given to us. And through that forgiveness, we are given grace upon grace, treasure upon treasure, hope upon hope, blessing upon blessing, none of which we deserve, and all based on God's mercy and grace towards us. I think I can speak for all of us when I say, thank you so much, Lord Jesus. As Paul writes to the Ephesian church, may we too be reminded of this calling and whose forgiveness of our sin we owe everything to, that we may, through the power of the Holy Spirit, live this out to the fullest as well. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift that you have given to us. We, we were all caught red-handed by you seeing everything we've ever done. And in your mercy, you led us to repent and you extended that forgiveness to us and you cleansed us from all unrighteousness and you justified us so that we could be legally seen as blameless before you. You've clothed us with the clothes of righteousness 
And you have given us the Holy Spirit to transform us, to help us experience and realize everything that is connected to the new life, everything that we are given in the new life and the eternal life that we have to look forward to. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time.